Hello and welcome back to Control Up Delete podcast. This is episode one in a mini series in partnership with Lenovo. They provide some of the latest cutting edge technology which I've been using myself recently, including the ThinkPad X1 Nano. It's so light and easy to chuck in a bag, which I'll definitely be doing on my next staycation. And it's so easy just to whip out on the tube, on the train, wherever you are, I've just been typing away. Over a series of three episodes, I've been chatting to someone whose work I really admire and enjoy Natalie Liu, author, podcaster, and host of the Baggage Reclaim Sessions. She helps people pleasers, perfectionists, and relationship strugglers become more of who they really are and achieve what they want to achieve. In this first episode, we're digging into the topic of how to be your own boss and get things done in your own time, including using a pen and paper. And shout out to the ThinkPad X1 Titanium, which has a pen you can use on the screen. We talk about how to block out time in the day, how to be creative and how to prioritize ourselves. Throughout the episodes in this mini series, we'll discuss how smart technology can solve problems, create opportunities and transform the way we all live, learn and work. The tools we use are important and can empower passionate people who value their own health, well-being and the world they live in and impact change for a better world. I'm excited to dig in. Thank you so much to Lenovo for making this mini series happen and I hope you enjoy. So I'm really excited to be sat opposite in person with Natalie Lou. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Emma. I was actually thinking back in my memory box the other day of when we first met, and it was like four years ago, I think. You did an amazing talk at Blogtacular, and I genuinely remember so much of that talk four years on, and I was like, wow, that is a sign of a good talk. <laughs> I, you know, it was a, I really enjoyed meeting you that day. I remember it was like getting into some really like deep conversations and we like known each other like only like a brief amount of time. That was a really, really good day, actually. It was. And the same has happened just now. We just like basically put the world <laughs> to rights. God, no, I love it. But welcome to the podcast. I've wanted to interview you for ages now. So really excited to have you f- across this mini series. So I'm just going to basically pick your brain for three episodes. So thank you. Love it. (laughs) And I wanted to start off for anyone that doesn't know your work, because if they do, they would have probably listened to your podcast, followed everything you've been doing over the last however many years of blogging and creating. But for anyone that is coming to you for the first time, a little bit in a nutshell of your path to what you're doing now, because you, you started doing this really early on, but has it been quite a zigzag to what you're doing now? Um, yeah, um, in a couple of weeks time, so in early June, I will have been blogging for 17 years. And pre-blogging, I worked in various sort of media sales roles here in, in the UK and back home in Ireland in Dublin. And I also I moved to London about 20 years ago to do um, a degree in product design and design and technology. I ended up working like for tech companies and was hearing about blogging. I was like, hmm. Like I read a piece, I think it was April 2004, I think it was in The Observer, about the emergence of blogging. I think it had Belle de Jour in there oh and not God. Bridget Jones. Good like, times, yes. Yeah. And um, I saved the piece, uh, forgot all about it, went on a bad date, like literally a couple of months later, was awake at four o'clock in the morning with a dodgy tummy. And I was like, oh, what's that thing about blogging? Because I was like, in my head, I was like griping about my poor taste in men. And 10 minutes later, I had a blog on Blogspot. And that was uh, June 2004. And within days, I had readers because back then you could start, uh, you know, you could start your blog and 
the only way you could interact with people was through the comments and through email. But within days, I had readers. And I think after about a year or so of the blog, I had about 10,000 readers a month on there. And I did it in secret uh, because I, I worked for like one of the biggest IT um, magazine publishers in the world. And um, I didn't want to more know my business. But also, I was doing it anonymously. So uh, I didn't have my photo on there. And they could tell from how I wrote and when I was talking about like going home to Ireland all the time. Um, they all just thought I was this white, pale, red-haired woman from Ireland because, you know, people have that sort of generalization. And then I was outed, and I say outed, I was interviewed by the Daily Express, which I didn't think anybody read. <laughs> Back then, they clearly did. <laughs> and so I didn't think anybody read it. I said, nobody reads the Daily Express. No offense to anybody who does. And that was February 2006. And literally got to work at nine o'clock that morning and the whole building knew. And it went like wildfire through all the, like loads of tech companies. They were talking about it, like all the big names. They were in meetings talking about this girl, you know, at this publisher who's basically had this blog. So funny. But um, when I had my now almost 14 year old, um, I realized that I was kind of onto something with this blogging because I'd, I'd started Baggage Reclaim in September 2005. And it was because I'd sort of had, I was really ill at the time. I'd been given a sort of serious diagnosis, sort of the one where they say, if you don't go on steroids for life, you'll be dead by 40 type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it really forced me to confront my life, like in terms of I didn't take care of myself properly. I was perfectionist, people pleaser, ignoring my body terrible taste in men. And I was still blogging, obviously, at this time. And I had, it was like a bit of an awakening because I thought I was a weirdo. And I thought it was just me who behaved like this. And then you talk out loud about it on a blog and people go, uh, you're talking about me. And so about a month after that, I started Baggage Reclaim in September 2005. And so a few years later, when I had now my eldest and I went back to work on maternity leave and they really had not got their act together, um, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back on maternity leave. I picked up some freelance work and um, basically it self-published my first ebook a month later. And wow. I've been doing this full time now for 13, over, nearly 13 and a half years now. And was that an easy choice to make to go and start your, doing things by yourself? I just, I know that when you working something on the side and it starts doing well a lot of people say I didn't have that inner confidence to think oh, I could go and make actually make this a business <laughs> did you have that sort of deep down buried that actually screw this I'm going to go out on my own or was it more organic than that um there was I had this sort of sense of inner knowing that this was something that I I needed to do like it's not like I was really making money per se off off the blog at the time. I never ran advertising on there, but I knew that there was something in me that said that I needed to pursue this full time. And I should actually mention that uh, a month before I had my first, I also started another blog called Bambino Goodies, which is still going today. It's like this kid's lifestyle blog. I stepped away from it about three, four years ago, but it became one of the biggest like kids blogs in the UK. And what I saw from that and from the amount of interest in what I was writing was I could create things that could help people to to change their lives, or in the case of Bambino goodies, to to find cool stuff for their home and for their kids. And that I could try and do it on the side, you know, continue doing that. But I felt like I needed to commit. Mm -hmm. And I had the advantage of being able to go off 
back to maternity leave again. And that gave me a few months to, I picked up some freelance work, as I said, I, I wrote that first ebook. There was this sense of, I can have a go at this, but people thought I was absolutely crazy. Like literally up until I, we went to a reunion for my work a few years ago, my old boss said to me, oh, you know, your job's here anytime. And I went, you know, I've actually been out of the company, like for, I think at that point, like seven or eight years, but he was like, how's, how's, the, how's your little blog going? I was like, oh, but people still call this podcast my hobby sometimes. My mom, <laughs> my mom called my work a hobby. That's oh yeah, you know, this is your little hobby. I was like, oh, I just didn't even have the energy to try to explain that to her. But yeah, there was that. I had this weird confidence, but I also think it came from having worked in magazine publishing. I understood that I could take how I'd worked there and what I understood about that and apply it to how I was working. And it it, it did work. Did you have any teething periods with that, with that <laughs> kind of being uh, your own boss thing? Uh, yeah. Oh, obviously, it takes years. I'm still learning now how to manage myself and be my own boss and send myself to bed on time. It's like needing to be your own parent in many ways. But uh, how amen. was that at the beginning, being your own boss? So obviously, I was doing it with a toddler. And then I also became pregnant again, <laughs> like literally, I think about three, four months. <laughs> and don't people say that when you have a baby, they're the boss of you? <laughs> uh, yeah, like, like totally, totally. And the funny thing is that um, I always say that business is therapy, even work is therapy. So anything that you don't deal with through your interpersonal relationships, it's going to come up through work. So I was like, oh, well, look at me. I've made all these changes in my life. I talk about it online. I'm helping people. You start working for yourself. And I just really saw the extent of my people pleasing, the perfectionism, the overthinking. And you're juggling that with with motherhood and just life in general and really struggling to prioritize myself. Like, you know, I've said quite a few times over the years, that self-discipline where you have to realize, do you know what? The dishwasher's not the most important flipping thing in the world or the laundry. Because at this rate, my gravestone was going to say, well, here lies Nasty Lou. She had so many things that she wanted to do, but she just never did manage to do all the chores in the house. Like it's letting go of that control. But I would work like sometimes crazy hours because I was juggling that around like toddler pregnancy. So sometimes squeezing it in in the in the evening and you're just so ex excited about doing what you're doing. And, you know, it's all comments and there was no such thing as really social media, you know, when I was starting out. And you can burn out because you try to do all the things like I am. I am an ideas. When I say I'm an ideas person, I'm not even saying that lightly. Like I never run out of ideas. I just like, it's almost like such a thing as like too much. Um, but yeah, more ideas than time, but that's okay is what I always say. And I really struggled with that. And I really struggled, I think, with the boundaries of people expecting things of mm -hmm. me and also what I expected of myself. Because the truth is people, I'm the worst boss I ever had. Like I've had I've some had that, yeah. crackerjack bosses in my time. Like I literally have worked for David Brent times a thousand like back in the day. I'm still the worst boss I ever had. I expected too much of me. Like I would, I realized that what I expected to do in a week when I'm beating myself up for not getting through the to-do list was what somebody would do in like two, three, four weeks. So I had a very, very unrealistic perception of, you know, my bandwidth, you know, what I was supposed to be doing. And that broke me 
eventually. And you need these experiences because it forces you to actually create boundaries and to respect your bandwidth and to, yeah, to prioritize actually. Totally, totally. And I see it in myself now. I can notice it now when I'm sort of punishing myself. Mm. It's a very strange thing. Like I actually had it the other day where I was feeling a bit tired and a bit emotional. And I thought, oh, I know what will make myself feel better doing loads of work. <laughs> and it was like, mm, that's a very strange thing to push myself into doing when I'm feeling fragile. And it, it what if I just, the energy was off and I was like, you need to rest. Like this is not working. And I wondered, you talk a lot about boundaries. You help a lot of people with their boundaries. What would you say the difference is between pushing ourselves, pushing our boundaries? Because, you know, we're both ambitious people. We, mm. we do want to keep pushing, pushing versus knowing when actually the boundaries need to be stronger and, and maybe we don't need to keep pushing. Uh, maybe that's a convoluted question, but there's a difference between setting boundaries and pushing boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, boundaries are really about understanding our responsibilities and also not misusing our bandwidth. Because we, if we're not taking care of us and we're exploiting ourselves or allowing others to exploit us, we're going to run into problems. And for me, the biggest thing in life really has been about learning to listen to myself. And, you know, you talk also about like inner critic and it's knowing that difference between you, you know, your inner voice, that intuition, the gut, the, the inner knowing and the inner critic, which I always say is like, you know, when you have the, the radio on low or like you got the elevator music. So it's like a backing track. And I think it pipes up when you are afraid, when you're stressed, you know, it, when it, whatever pattern you have of being critical, that's when your inner critic is going to suddenly chime in. And it is, as I said, this, this backing track and the volume increases at certain points. And so if you don't have great boundaries, your inner critic is going to be really, really loud because you're out of alignment with who you are. And so I realized that my inner voice doesn't really give two hoots about all the things that you think you're supposed to. Like when, you know, when you're comparing yourself to somebody, you see, oh, somebody announces something, you're like, oh my gosh, my, my, inner, my inner self doesn't care about that. So meh, whatever. But my inner critic, however, the ego is like, oh my gosh, this is the death of you. So any of that sort of pushing stuff, there's nothing wrong with encouraging yourself, but you have to look at where is the shame coming in? Mm -hmm. Where is the, you know, when you hear that chatter, it's like, well, if I don't do this, then this is going to happen. People are going to think this of me. You know, when you hear all of that type of chatter going on in your head, when that doesn't kind of seem to be that sort of off switch where you can be like, you know what, I can step back from that a bit. This is where the pushing is becoming unhealthy. And I'm somebody who will push and push and push and push and push and push and push. And I realized it's because I grew up not knowing that there was such a thing as limits. My parents just expected of me. They decided that I was really clever that I was really capable, that I was going to do more than what they had. Well, specifically my mom, like I, I had to have all the opportunities, all the advantages. She had decided that I was a genius. And so it was like, it was, I just had to get on and do stuff. And if you couldn't do it, it was more like, well, why not? So there was no like, oh, rest or it's okay. And so as a result, it's really taken being sort of into 30s and now into early 40s, being like, well, actually more like heading into mid 40s now, where it's like, oh, like there is such a thing as limits. But I treated myself that way because that's 
how I was also treated. And I think a lot of us can really identify with that. So really notice it as well if it's autopilot, you know, like where you just do it by by default rather than really making a conscientious sort of value-driven choice about it as well. Oh, so well said. Totally. And and knowing yourself and knowing which is the voice that's yeah. the gut and which is the inner critic, that's taken me years to work yeah. out. And now I can actually be quite humorous with the inner critic now because yes. yesterday I was feeling a bit blur and it started saying really horrible things to me and I was almost like, oh, come on. <laughs> like, here we go again because it's the same. It's on repeat. It's oh the same gosh. old triggers. It's the same old horrible stuff. It's the same old weird fear that like, everyone hates me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you're being so ridiculous. Amen, amen, <laughs> amen. Like uh, sometimes like when my inner critic pipes up, I'm like, oh, hello, old friends. Here you are. What a surprise. <laughs> Here you go. Like, it's, it's funny. Like, I, you know, you and I talked about this. Like, I, I got a book deal, you know, a couple of months back. And so you imagine, like, you'd be sort of elated, sort of on this high. So literally, like, it goes to auction, get the deal. Like, that's the Wednesday night. I am elated. It took 24 hours, barely, before the inner critic is on my case. Yeah, but what if this isn't actually going to happen? Oh, like this could all go wrong. Don't get too excited. Like it was this whole thing, like trying to really dampen me. And it was quite a revelation to see this. And and have my husband thought it was hilarious. He said, I knew this is gonna happen. Like it really got into my head. And I remember sending an email <laughs> to my agents about three, four days later, going, Oh, I just want to check. Uh, you mentioned something about like doing an introduction like with the publishers and they went, Natalie, it's okay. The deal is happening. <laughs> like you can relax. Because my but that's why authors, so many of them chase up the contract till the last minute of like, is this definitely happening? Is this definitely happening? And they're like, it's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My inner critic had a field day with me. The inner critic does not like you being out of your comfort zone. And wherever you've been typically typically critical, Yes. of yourself or where others have been critical of you, that's become a habit. And so it actually starts to happen like pretty much automatically in those situations. And you have to be able to catch it. And as you said, the sense of humor really makes a difference because then you have that curiosity and you yeah. realize, that, oh my gosh, like it's this old stuff. It's the emotional baggage, not the truth. And ironically, yes, it's the inner critic that pipes up when you're out of your comfort zone, but actually it also pipes up when you're actually quite in a safe place mm. like you've just got this amazing book deal you're, you're in a good space <laughs> and yet your brain is like oh let's just test whether this is actually okay it's crazy yeah I always say it's switchy like I, I said if you think you can try to please your inner critic don't even bother because let's say your inner critic's like you can't do that you know you're way like you know beneath that you know you're you're not capable so then you agree with your inner critic, switch sides. Ah, oh, look at you, well, weak and pathetic. You don't go and do that. So you can't please your inner critic. And that's how you know that no, if no matter what you do, you're still getting that. It's because it's not the real you. It's, you yeah. know, it's, it's your inner critic. And it's not the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Can't pin it down. So on this topic of being your own boss then, I wanted to ask you on that same theme of not knowing when you're pushing yourself too much or whether you're choosing to work from a good place Obviously, technology has evolved. Mm. We've both been checking out the Lenovo Nano ThinkPad Nanos. Very small. They go in your handbag. Well, not your handbag, a tote bag. But <laughs> they basically are very light and you can take them anywhere. And what is what I'm trying to work on is I want to enjoy my gadgets and my things. I'm yes. quite techie. I like buttons. I like making things. But I want them to enhance my life and my career. I don't want them to be always on and buzzing and yeah. taking over my life and distracting me. So how do you 
enjoy your work from that place? Like, how do we use our tech in a place that makes us feel good? Do you know, like, I'm the same as you where I'm loving my gadgets. And, you know, that has allowed me to do the work that I do, because obviously you and I couldn't have done what we were doing or what we're doing now, like 20 or so years ago. It just wasn't really possible. Um, But it can take over your life because if you bring, for instance, the laptop into your bedroom and you have got into bed because you're planning to have an early night, but then you remember this thing that you forgot from earlier, it's just so easy to reach down and pick it up, put it in your lap and say, oh, I'll just do this. Oh, there's a notification about something else. And next thing you know, you've been on there for ages. So I've really had to discipline when I say discipline myself it's it's the self-discipline of of really sort of aligning with how you want to feel and continue feeling because after a while if you kind of are almost doing things on a whim and just picking it up all the time you start to actually hate the thing hate yourself hate the work so you realize oh actually you do have to put those boundaries in there and say actually like I have a now studio workspace like at the end of my garden and I often leave my laptop down there because it's there's no temptation yeah then I'm gonna have to make a lot of efforts to traipse down the garden to avoid fox poo goodness knows what (laughs) else to get down there in the dark so it's 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 down there but it's it's it can be very very consuming to do the work that we do especially you know as writers you sort of get this sort of stream of thoughts it's very easy to pick up the phone, pick up the laptop and, and put it in. Um, pen and paper has been very handy for pulling me away from that. So that way I can still love my tech. But it's like sometimes like, do you know what? Jotting things down on the pen, you know, pen and paper just helps to put a bit of distance in there and remind you that the tech doesn't have to be everything. Yeah. Like it's making your life easier. You know, it's, it's, it's making things smarter, you know, faster, making it more productive. But at the same time, sometimes the good old basics <laughs> is what's needed. So you can go back to appreciating the tech more as well. It's so true because I think we don't appreciate some of the things we have because it's so sort of all consuming. And actually, I really like it when I am really intentional with my writing time or my podcasting time. And I'm actually like enjoying the process, enjoying my laptop or whatever, how silly that might feel, but using it for a reason where it's just, I'm in flow with it. A hundred percent. Because when you have that sort of intentional use of something, you know why you're doing what you're doing. Whereas if what's happening is, I don't know, somebody's getting on your nerves or you're feeling a bit off about something and then you kind of reach for the laptop, your devices as a distraction, you go down that rabbit hole, you've actually picked that up because you're avoiding feeling whatever it is that you're feeling or thinking about it or dealing with whatever it is. Yes. And <laughs> my husband does say to me, if he sees me during the day, like vacuuming or like surfing, you know, just kind of aimlessly kind of sitting there, what's up, Natalie? <laughs> what's going on? What are you stressed about? And when he kind of started doing that with me, it again, it really sort of brought me back to this intentionality with, with tech because you realize how you can actually misuse it in ways. And we have to be boundary with that because we actually need our tech for what we're doing. like, And if we are not intentional with it, the thing that we need to do the work with becomes also the thing that's kind of wrecking our head, literally.
It's true. And I feel like when, when you are your own boss, you kind of have to make sure you still have a spark with yeah. the thing because otherwise, I mean, imagine if you stopped loving it or stopped wanting to do what you do. Imagine if you never wanted to touch a piece of technology again. It would be like, oh my God, what do we do now? So I feel like it's really important to keep that sort of good relationship with it, I suppose. I don't want to pick up my phone and feel icky. I want to pick it up and feel good. It's actually going to help our careers if we have good relationships with these things. Do you know, that's very true because I actually went through a phase of, was it the year I met you? Um where I fell out of love a bit with it happens. Yes. what I was doing. My dad passed away. That was sort of April 2017. I turned 40 in July. And I, I you take time off because, you know, funeral, all those things. And then the little voice in your head's like, oh, I should probably get back to it now. So I um, went back to work and found I didn't fit back into my life. I found everything exhausting in much in much the same way that we've actually experienced over this last year with with lockdown, that things that we used to be able to do with ease, you go, wow, like how the hell did I do that? And I went through an existential crisis, I think. Like it was, everything sort of went into meltdown. I took almost a year's break from the podcast. I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I, 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 I wasn't, I was doing bits and pieces, but I was, I was like trying to find my joy again. Mm. It's, good, it's good that you lent into that break though, because some I people feel like, oh, I'll power through. But the, the bravest thing you can do is rest sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it was funny because as I said, it was about eight weeks or eight, nine weeks after it passed and I tried to go back. I didn't fit into it. I was really struggling. And it sort of got to the, the July when I was turning 40 and all of a sudden things started to become clear. And I was like, I need to let go of some of the freelancers I'm working with. I'd moved to an office around the corner because, you know, the business books, the careers advice, they all tell you, oh, you need to delegate and you need to get a VA, you need to do this and you need to go and get an office. So I had this lovely office around the corner that I was sharing with friends and it was really handy in those sort of uh, first couple of months after dad passed. I was just kind of chill there on my own sometimes. And then I was like, this is not for me. I don't want to work with people. I know that sounds, I'm, it's not, I'm, it's not that I'm antisocial, but I've realized I do not want to run some company with a whole load of people around me um, and have people constantly, oh, what do I need to do? I don't want to be coming up with work for people. I don't want to be like, oh, okay, I need to work out like how much do I need to earn this much work out who I want to go and pay. I want to make stuff. I want to change people's lives. But it took doing all these things, having an employee for a year, having all these people working for me to suddenly go, what the hell is all of this? And I I was burnt out. I had no choice but to slow down. I mean, the irony is, is that while I was on this break, I actually went off and trained from scratch in the space of four months for a marathon, which burnt out again. So there's lots of learnings, you know, in there, but you can fall out of love with work. If you think that you're going to start up something and you're going to love it from here to eternity. And every day you're going to be like, oh, this is amazing. Or you're just going to want to do the same thing forever. Here to tell you, ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because it suddenly occurred to me, I was like, oh, did I think that I was going to like start baggage reclaim back in you know September 2005? And I would just like want to like write the blog, do the podcast or whatever. And I would just do that and do that and do that and do that until, I don't know, you're 65 and you collect your gold watching video. It's just... <laughs> No. And that was then I was like, oh, because there are other things that I can do. But you have to 
you're going to have to have these crisis points. Yeah. And learn and grow and 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 everything changes. And then fall again (laughs) and then, you know, get back up and and keep going. Do you think that is a myth in this space that being your own boss is is really easy? Because I think we glamorize it or romanticize it quite a bit. And I know that I have written business books and I try very hard not to say this is easy. It's the opposite of easy. Mm. I'm not trying to sell a lifestyle to anyone like, oh, be a multi-hyphenate and your dreams will come true. For me, yes, partly that is true because the fact that I don't have to ask anyone for any holiday time, the fact that I can work from anywhere, like Mm -hmm. to me, that is, that's what I've always wanted. But that doesn't mean it's easy. No, it's not. And I do think that the culture is to put a veneer on things and give the impression that everything is like hunky-dory. And I think particularly for women, we do have this thing of trying to make things appear as if they're just so much better than they are because we're socialized to compete with each other. Mm-hmm. And so there is this whole thing, oh, let me make motherhood look easy while I hide like what a terrible time I'm going through and how much I'm struggling. You know, let me make my relationship look like super easy. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're hearing a horror story of that. Let me make working for myself look easy. And the thing is, you're, you're only doing yourself a disservice with that, but also actually it's harmful to the people that you engage with. I remember going to a talk years ago with quite a famous influencer who was given the opening keynote. And basically it was all, so yeah, like I got this like gig with, I don't know, it's Anthropology, Target, like all these massive names. Yeah, it just kind of came along. Yeah, it just kind of came along. First of all, that's a really boring talk. People want a sense of the journey if everything just kind of lands on you that's first of all that's not true it's like you want to give the impression of everything being perfect and like no struggle that's not real life but my, I also, my least favorite phrase actually on that is when people say i fell into it yeah need to how <laughs> how like you didn't fall into it and it, it, like you know one of my pet peeves is when people make out as well that they that they worked like really hard for something when actually it was luck in that particular instance that that thing happened. And that doesn't take anything away from it. But don't try to pitch something as, oh, I like had this whole strategy and this thing happened. No, it was luck. Like that particular thing, that social media is a prime example of that. You know, when you have these people who were like, oh, like I have all these followers on Instagram and let me teach you how to do this. But depending on when you got on Instagram or what you were doing, it's luck. Mm-hmm. Right, but you're trying to pitch it as like, oh, like I have a whole strategy here, and but I also think that the ease thing and like that that there's this the businesses can only be done like in a path or in a ladder it really winds me up, and it's like when you work for yourself, like you do your, for instance, your side hustle, I might call it or multi hyphen, and then it's like, well, then you make a choice and you then like you go full time with that thing and then you have to turn it into like a multi six figure thing of a multi million dollar thing and then you have to hire VAs and you have to do this and you have to do that no you don't because mm-hmm. i think another myth of being your own boss is that yeah you have to be this entrepreneur and you have to be the ceo of your company no. and i and to me i don't see it like that at all i see it as uh, quite small overheads. I see it as a team of, I mean, it's a team of one in terms of me being a creative, but I do work with other people yes. now. But you can live a quiet, 
small-ish life if you want to and be your own boss. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough. Yeah, uh, 100%. Like, And it's funny because I've had a number of conversations with people who've done the whole, oh, I'm a CEO, I'm director of this, I'm da, 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 da. and then they've realized, no, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a whatever it might be. And again, I think it's th- this myth that, oh, this is the way to do business, like the capital W way. And it's... It's not because uh, I think we've both read that book. Was it called A Company of One? Yes. I love that book uh, by Paul Jarvis. Yeah. Yes. And about how actually you don't have to go and turn yourself into some corporate machine. I think one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating about people who go off and work for themselves is often what motivates them is that, you know, they want the freedom, the flexibility, like both you and I, it's like, we can, you know. No, I don't have to ask anybody other than myself mm-hmm. for my holidays or whatever it might be. But they leave these structures that they hate. Then they go off and do their own thing and recreate the same structures, the same red tape. And you're going, but why? Oh my God, it's so true. It's like you leave a toxic environment and then you go and start one. Yeah. When actually, for me, the laptop in the tote bag is still really the dream for me. Yeah. And it's just... Okay, like life is just boiled down to me and the internet. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. And I-, I think that there's a lot of posturing as well that goes online. Like, I think one of the things I'm thankful for is having been around for so long because I can remember what it was like before, like all of the social media and then all of the six figure online marketing, seven figure business, you know, gurus on there. And but there's a lot of posturing that goes goes on and. A lot of people, as as you said, like not really giving a true insight into what is going on. I'm not saying that you got to lay yourself bare. Like people always think that they know me. And of course, they have a sense of me through the work that I do. They probably think I'm sharing like all of my life. They're probably only giving them like five, 10%. But it feels like, and in the same way I see that with business owners is they, 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 they sell their success. And I think this is a dangerous thing that's taking place online. This is what's creating a, a, creating and reinforcing a lot of the myths. And so people sell this vision of success and then people buy into that and they buy the online course or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then they get in there and they're like, what the hell is this? Because the person sometimes doesn't even know why they're as successful at doing the thing that they do, but they've come up with a system and a formula and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, okay, well, if you want to know more, then let me sell you into my massive masterminds. And it's like, oh, give me a break. The truth is, right, the myth is that you can go and pick up a book or take an online course or whatever it is and that somebody's going to tell you exactly what to do. The truth is you're going to have to figure out a lot of this stuff on your own or with the help of the right people around you. But you're still, it's always going to come back to listening to yourself. Yes. Yes. Always. And that's the thing with working for yourself is it is a real learning process. And yes, you might not have an HR team or someone training you in a traditional sense, but that all happens. It just happens maybe a bit more internally or you're reading or Mm. you're learning. But I actually was reading a book um, recently. I haven't read it all yet, but it's very good. And it's called How to Manage Yourself. And it's by the Harvard Business Review. It's one of those books. And there's the opening chapter, which says, which asks you, how will you measure your life? I was like, oh, that's a really interesting question. Not that we have to measure everything, Mm. but you could turn it on its head and actually question like, what am I doing and how am I measuring it? We sort of spoke before the recording about how we feel about the numbers game. You know, Mm. we're sort of a bit over that. How do you measure now what you're doing and and whether it's working for you? So I always come back to what I call like my circle of trust, 
which is like if you imagine a circle and you know you draw that on a piece of paper and inside there is how you want to feel and continue feeling the things the relationships the opportunities that matter or that you want to have in the future that's where i am operating within if i feel the way i'm not saying that i have to feel like this like 24 7 like the whole time but if i feel this way and i am living my life in a lot of the ways that i want to that's how i know that i'm i'm on the right track for want of a better word and i'm working with the right people and this has been once i started working from this place of knowing what i could trust you've got to trust your values you've got to trust like what you know about you what you know that you need because that allows you to align with the right people like in terms of like if you're working for instance with agents or managers or you're doing collaborations when you know how you want to feel and continue feeling and the values that matter to you like in terms of character you know then when things don't feel that way you get to go oh wait hold up a second dear what's going on. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the wrong thing, but sometimes it's about how you're approaching it. Like I have talked quite a bit about how I can suck the flipping joy out of things because of the perfectionism. And like, that's why I call myself a recovering people pleaser and perfectionist because I go gung ho at stuff and I just keep, you know, I can edit the hell out of something. I don't, you know, not leaving things alone. And so sometimes that's the thing. It's like, oh, that's the thing that's causing me to feel this way. But sometimes it's like, oh, I need to ask them mm-hmm. something or I need to clarify something or I need to make it known that this particular thing is important to me. Now that I operate from that space, that's how I know when things are going well for me. I'm having a lot of joy. I'm doing like stuff that maybe I didn't even imagine that I would be doing because I'm not so fixated on you know, these sort of arbitrary things that you think are markers of success. That's when I know that I'm kind of off track in some way when you get caught up in all the things. Yes. Oh my God. That's so spot on. And I was thinking with that then, do you almost have like data over 17 years, for example, which (laughs) sounds insane. Cause when I look at you, I'm like, you don't even look like (laughs) old enough to have worked for 17 years. But do you find that you kind of feel like almost you have this like data set of what makes you feel good, what makes yeah. you feel bad? And you're like, oh, it's that thing again. Yeah, 100%. Like, and we all have that personal encyclopedia. And if we are constantly criticizing ourselves, chasing after things, we don't gather the data. In fact, we gather the data, but we ignore it because we keep going, oh, well, that happened because I'm not good enough. I'll right. try again and I'll maybe it'll again. happen this time. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you have that, that curiosity, it's like, oh, where else have I felt this way before? Where else have I acted or thought this way? And this can go either way where, yeah, sometimes when we kind of feel quite triggered and stuff, it's like the question I always get people to ask is like, what's the baggage behind this? Like, where else have I felt, thought and acted similarly? Who or what does this thing or this person remind me of? But similarly, when we're like in that zone where it's like, oh, this feels really good. Like you're feeling joyous, you're feeling in flow, you're feeling energized, all this stuff. It's like, oh, data. This is a good sign because next time I'm feeling like this around something that I'm working on, I know that this is exactly the type of stuff that I need to be doing. So it can go either way. Yes. And you just need to like navigate more towards that. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Like Martha Beck, who's one of my favorite people to follow. She is, she, she basically was laughing with someone on a podcast recently saying that I can't believe people have paid me for years to be a life coach. She basically says in a nutshell, do less of what you hate and more of what you love. Amen. And she was like, but people want to hear that over and over and over Over, again. That's, that's, that's my daily 
daily work, which is uh, figure out what you're saying too much yes to and learn how to say no. And that's where you find the joy. Yeah. Because once you are saying no authentically, as well as yes, authentically, that's where you discover the joy of really who you are and what you want to be and do. And my last question on this theme of the myths around working for yourself, being your own boss, what would you say to anyone listening who is maybe thinking it could be for them, but they're not sure? Like, how do you test out whether you want to dive into doing your own thing? Is there any sort of questions you can ask yourself? I mean, obviously you can go and try something and then jump back in to working in a company. It's mm. not a fixed role, but do you think it's a personality type? Do you think it's a certain type of person? Because I know that, you know, something that I really am sort of against is 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 this idea that everyone should. Yeah. Um, I, I did a I did a podcast episode actually with Kate Sevilla, who yes. we both know, about how actually not everyone does want to do this. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. It's like it's like when I've spoken to people about like working in companies and I say, you know that not everybody has to become like a manager or like the leader or the boss. Like if everybody's trying to do that, then where's all the other people in there? It doesn't make you unambitious if yeah. you don't want to go and do those things. Like I have a friend who was asked, um, you know, to go for promotion and she said, no, thanks. And she said, and it's not because I'm not ambitious. She says, I know that if I accept that promotion, I am going to be doing a very different type of work. You would expect far more out of me. And I don't want to do it. I love that. I and it was that. just like this amazing. So I, you know, going back to what I said earlier about the circle of trust, like everybody, I, I, I bang on about this, but like literally get a piece of paper, draw a circle on it. And inside there is I start to get a sense of like, who are you as a person? Like what matters to you? Like I know that integrity, you know, creativity, my spirituality, you know, that my, my principal thing is love, care, trust, and respect, which, you know, is at the foundation of everything I do on baggage reclaim. If I don't feel like that, I know something is way off. But in there, you can also start to put in like, well, what do I want to be? What do I think I want to be doing? You know, what are the things that matter? And then when, if you're thinking about working for yourself, you can look at like, okay, if I was going to work for myself, how could I work for myself in a way that would reflect more of what's in this circle? Mm -hmm. Because I think that where people struggle with this whole deciding to work for themselves thing is that we've all internalized images of what working for yourself means. What is a business person? What is an entrepreneur? Uh, you know, as I said, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. So it's like Dynasty, Shoulder Pads, <laughs> Dallas, uh, uh, Michael Douglas films, you know, Wall Street, all that type of stuff, right? Not really how things are today. <laughs> and so we end up play acting, like instead of being who we are, we play, for instance, the role of being the good worker. And then we play the role of being the successful entrepreneur or the business owner. And that means that we do things that we think a business owner is supposed to do or is expected to do rather than what's actually true for us. Now, I'm not saying like, don't do your accounts, you know, and fiddle the books <laughs> and all that type of stuff. I mean that we end up thinking, oh, well, I've got to do it this way because other people have. And it's like, well, actually, like try to identify what it is that you think working for yourself is about, because that's where you can see your biases, you know, your blind spots, any assumptions that aren't really working for you. Ask around, like have conversations with people who already are. Don't take their experience as being like the gospel on what's going to be your experience. But it helps you to start to build up a more realistic picture of what to expect. Because a lot of people are very shocked when they go off and work for themselves. And some of them then go, oh my gosh, like this is totally not what I thought. Boom, straight back into work. And it's not necessarily the solution. 
So true. Oh my God. Love that. And that reminds me actually of some wrong turns I took when I started working for myself. I totally fell into that trap of like, must be this ball busting businesswoman. And it was like, what? <laughs> like that could not be less of who I am as a person. And I remember wearing like these brightly colored blazers and like trying to be really powerful. And I was like, this is so like a masculine way of thinking I need to be powerful. Yeah. And actually all of the true power came from when I just started to own up to the fact that I was an introvert. Yeah, I liked wearing comfortable clothes. Yeah. And actually you can, you know, I was taught like never put a smiley face in an email because it'll make you like seem weak. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I'll put some smileys in. <laughs> yeah, it's like the thing is, there's one thing I know for sure from like doing what I do in the way that I've done it is the really my greatest gains have come from the pure unadulterated being myself because I'm the type of person who's very uncomfortable doing things that really don't feel like me and that's where I run into problems when I like I I feel like I'm towing the party line Mm -hmm. and where I'm kind of as I said like playing that role but it's it's like you can wear whatever you want to wear. All of this is that corporate messaging, the capitalist messages, the patriarchal, the sexism. Honestly, particularly as women, we have internalized so much, like we're ageist against, never mind what we might say about anybody else. We're ageist with ourselves. We're sexist with ourselves. We sometimes are actually perpetrating the patriarchy on ourselves. So we have to actually check in and be like, well, why do I think that I've got to be all ball busty? I've met so many women who've done that. And I think I even went for a phase of, of doing that. I, I, I remember working, this is like back home in Dublin and I, I was working at Golden Pages then. Remember telephone directories like back yeah. in the day? And Ali McBeal was on then. And I feel like I went for a phase where I was quite like Ling. <laughs> <laughs> So you just you 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 internalize these sort of you know narratives, these archetypes of what you think like work is supposed to be. And I've just found that it's I things are easier, but sometimes scary, but always easier when you're yourself. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I also feel like when you enter that mode of like pure authenticity, like people around you would be able to be like, mm, "What are you doing?" <laughs> if you kind of go off the track yeah. because it's so obvious who you are. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I I do think that. We are socialized to distrust our feelings, to like not listen to them. So if you've woken up, uh, you know, in adulthood going, I just have no idea like who I am, what I want. Like a lot of people are in careers because their parents told them it was a good job to have. Yeah. Or they're doing the same thing that their parents did. And they're just trying to like do what other people expect. So if you don't know who you are, you're not quite sure what your boundaries are. You know, you're struggling with the whole working for yourself or, or contemplating it it's okay. Like you've internalized a whole load of stuff, but be aware of it because it's not the truth. I've literally just felt like my body relax when you say that because being reminded of how much we're socialized is actually a very kind message. You know, you're basically saying, when you say that, you're basically saying, kind of let yourself off the hook a little bit. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. We we like to think we're supposed to know everything. Mm -hmm. Why would you know everything about running a business, you know, or, or whatever work you're doing. Like, why Why would you know all of that? Also, what you think you can go and do a degree in it and that that will teach you everything that you need to know about work or, or working for yourself and, and st- you know, st- no, it's the work of actually getting your hands dirty and getting in there. But we've been socialized to believe that there are instructions mm-hmm. for everything and that basically if the, if the results that you want don't happen, well, it must be your fault. Yeah. 
Exactly. And that is a lovely note to end on because for anyone listening, um, this is episode one of a three-part series. So yeah. come back and listen to the next one and we will carry on a lot more of this chat. But that was really useful and a really good from- reminder for me. I've been working for myself for six years now and I'm yeah. still, I still need to hear it. <laughs> so thank <laughs> <Me> you. Me too. <laughs> I hope you are enjoying this mini-series in partnership with Lenovo. This episode is one of three in a series with the brilliant Natalie Liu. So just a reminder to go and check out the other episodes if you enjoyed this one. Thank you so much for tuning in.